we are going to be in Scripture together, and um, we are we are of like heart and mind here. We believe in expository preaching. Generally speaking, we like to preach sermons that have um, the main point of a text as the main point of a sermon. But this morning, we're going to deviate from that pattern a little, and we're going to trace one theme across Scripture. And because we believe in positive, uplifting messages here, that theme is going to be Satan. And so for you note-takers, that's the word you can write across the top of your page, is Satan. But of course, we'll find as we go that uh, if we're discussing any topic and we're doing it rightly and biblically, then even that topic points specifically back to Christ and him crucified and him risen and him reigning as Lord and returning soon. So we will talk about Satan this morning, but even in that, uh, we will be encouraged together, I trust. Finally, at the end of this sermon, I'm going to be handing out a book. I've got two of these. I'm going to read you a little quote from this. There's not many good books on spiritual warfare out there written by those with good theology. But uh, we just uh, are finishing a little series on spiritual warfare And so Pastor Brent and I have dug pretty deeply, and we have a list of about eight books we think are good. In fact, I'll email that over to you, Ryan, and and you can make that available. But this is one of them. It's called Good News About Satan, A Gospel Look at Spiritual Warfare by Bob Bevington. Excellent little book. And I'm going to hand these two out after the sermon, but here's the rules of the game. Whoever takes these, you have to agree to read it within the next month or two. You have to then agree to give it to someone else in the body. And after they have read it, the two of you have to get together for coffee or lunch or something and discuss what God has taught you through that book. Those are the rules of the game, and I'm going to be checking with Ryan to make sure that you followed the rules. So two copies of these afterwards to whoever comes up and gets them first. And with that, we will turn to Scripture now, but um, let me look again with you in Ephesians chapter 6. We just read this as our scripture reading, and here, Paul, at the end of Ephesians, this beautiful God's eye view of the church and what God is doing in the world through the church, Paul prepares us to live as the church, and um, he just can't lay down his pen before he reminds us of our enemy. And so we get this beautiful spiritual warfare passage, and he says in Ephesians 6.10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? Why do we need these six pieces of armor, which really are just gospel realities? Why do we need to take them up and put them on? Meaning they are both defensive and in some sense offensive. We both wield them and wear them. But why? Paul says that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 400 years before Christ, they think, a book called The Art of War was written. It's still referenced today by those who uh, plan and strategize warfare and teach others how to do well in combat. Famously, the author said, know your enemy and know yourself. And in a hundred battles, you will never be defeated. And when you are ignorant of the enemy, but know yourself, your chances of winning or losing are equal. But if you're ignorant of your enemy and of yourself, you are sure to be defeated in every battle. There's a godly man in our church who has trained um, our forces both here and abroad in various theaters for some decades. And he told me that he opens a lot of his training with this quote. He said, that's truer than you realize. It's a matter of life and death. Well, if it's true in the battlefield, it is equally true every day in your life. And one of the problems that we face as Christians is that we wake up and the reset button has been hit and we're thinking about coffee and we're thinking about work and we're thinking about the kids and we forget that we are in a war. We forget that the war is raging on. There's a battle for your soul, for your kids, for your grandkids, a battle for your heart and for your mind. And Satan would love for you to stay ignorant of that great reality. 
We must wake up engaged in the battle. And in order to engage in the battle, we need to know our enemy. We need to know our enemy. But there's a bit of a danger as soon as we begin thinking about Satan or demons of spiritual warfare. C.S. Lewis in his wonderful book, The Screwtape Letters, if you've never read that, it's a classic. Highly encourage you to read that. But he says there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Now, they themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Now, both of these two errors are alive and well, even within evangelicalism today. Uh, one is to either not believe in Satan or simply to not take him seriously. We just went for the first time to a, a chain restaurant in our area called Torchies. Anyone ever heard of Torchies? Have you been there? And their logo is um, this red baby devil. He's all red. And he's, I think he might even have a diaper. I don't remember. Pitchfork. It's bizarre, but it's a little sort of uh, red devil looking thing. And one family in our church said that whenever they drive by the sign, their children notice this and they've taken to calling it red babies. And they say, hey, mom, dad, can we go back to red babies? You see? And so they're depicting Satan. And yet in a cute, simple, silly way that just looks like a red baby to a kid. You see, and Satan is thrilled by that depiction. He is thrilled by any depiction that cartoonizes him and defangs him because it allows him to operate quietly behind the scenes and tempt you into thinking that that sin is just not a big deal if you keep harboring it, and surely it will not have real consequences in your life. Oh, how happy for Satan to have you not taking his work seriously. But on the other hand is the uh, avalanche of unhelpful books and movies that have flooded America the last 50 years or so. Much of this, it's utter garbage. It's based on the notes of a few quote-unquote exorcists from the Catholic Church that worked with a few cases, and then it spun off books and movies. From there, it took root, as far as I can tell, um, well, they sort of developed at the same time, in uh, the broader Pentecostal movement. And what you had were some very unhelpful depictions of Satan and demons and what Christians must do in the name of spiritual warfare. And many of these books and movies, I find every one of them to be unhelpful, has you seeking some kind of power encounter with, a, with an apparent demon and, and shouting and trying to discover the name of a demon and, and you know, what is your name and I rebuke you and, and be gone from here and... Oh, how many books there are that will give you a script for confronting a demon and somehow overpowering it. Here's the one glaring problem with that. I don't find that in my Bible at all. Jesus casts a demon out of uh, someone. It goes into a herd of pigs and they drown. Um, the apostles do this. But you know what happens when you try to turn that sort of thing into um, a formula? Acts 19. In Acts 19, you have people that saw what Jesus did. They saw what a few of the apostles did as they were doing miracles that God allowed them to do to authenticate the ministry of Jesus and their message. They tried to turn this kind of um, spiritual warfare into a formula to be repeated. And you have the seven sons of Sceva who tried to cast a demon out. They're overpowered, beat up, stripped naked, and they fled the house bruised and bleeding. No, I don't recommend that to you. I don't recommend that to you because I love you, and the Word of God does not teach us to do that. Well, what do we do then? Knowing that Satan is real, knowing that Paul would have us take him seriously, well, how do we do spiritual warfare then? Well, the first step is to understand the one that we're fighting against in the first place. And so we'll look at this in, in uh, four movements here this morning. First, we'll understand Satan's origin. Uh, second, I want you to not fear Satan. Do not fear Satan. Thirdly, you need to take Satan's work seriously. We do not fear him, but we do take his work very seriously. And finally, we draw near to God. 
when it comes time to really engage in spiritual warfare, we'll see that that means drawing near to God. So let me pray for us one more time briefly, and we'll turn to the text together. Father, thank you for your love and for your grace. Thank you for the protection that we have in Christ. Father, you have given us all that we need. You have lavished upon us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have all that we need now to engage in life, in spiritual warfare, in, in the, uh, the work of sanctification. Father, you've given us all that we need to grow. You hold us secure. And so, Father, I pray that you would encourage us this morning as we look at Satan, our still active and yet defeated foe. Father, would you clarify in the hearts and minds of all of us here just who Satan is and where he's come from and what he's doing. And I pray, Father, that you would encourage all of us to flee to Christ daily. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. To understand Satan's origin, we have to go back and dig into the prophets a little bit. Curiously, Genesis assumes Satan. We have Genesis 1 and creation, Genesis 2, we get Adam and Eve, and we see that everything is good, it's beautiful, there's nothing wrong, there's no sin. We turn to Genesis 3, and here's a serpent. And if we're reading carefully, we say, where did this come from? If God is looking at all that he has created and saying it is good, that humanity is very good, then where did this talking serpent come from that's tempting them to sin? Well, God does reveal that to us, but only as the story unfolds. Jesus in Luke 10, 18 said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So already we have some kind of a hint that Satan was once in heaven. He was once a heavenly being, but he fell from heaven like lightning. We have to read some other passages to flesh that out and understand, well, what was it that Jesus saw? What does that mean? Well, I happen to take Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, both as explaining the origin of Satan. In both cases, it's a prophetic oracle against a human king who is acting in evil ways. And yet in both cases, this pronouncement of judgment seems to go beyond the circumstances of any human king and seem quite clearly to be describing the evil one behind this human evil king. So I want to read those to you, see if you agree with me. Don't take my word for things. Let's see them in the scriptures. First, Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 15. And if I move along quickly, you'll have to forgive me. I routinely preach for an hour Hour five. It's bad, Ryan. I go long. But I know Ryan is kind to you. He loves you, and so he often goes a lot shorter than that. So I'll go quick. I think we can do it. But uh, Isaiah 14, 12 to 15, listen to this. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. Well, that's a strange thing for the prophet to say about a human king. Now, maybe it's just hyperbole. He thinks he's from heaven, and that probably is a layer of truth in this, but let's keep reading. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most High, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. What an interesting uh, denouncement of the king of Babylon. Was he really saying that he would ascend above the heights of the clouds and that he would make himself like the most high? Maybe he was. Maybe he was that much of a maniac. Or maybe... Isaiah is speaking of the evil one behind this evil king of Babylon. Now, this gets even stronger when we turn to Ezekiel 28. Some of you are saying, I'm not sure. I'm not convinced. You're going to have to show me that the language is really elevated, too elevated, to apply to a human king. Well, let me attempt that here in Ezekiel 28, 12 to 17. As we read, tell me, could this really only speak of a human king? Or is this actually speaking of the origin of all sin, 
Satan. Ezekiel 28, 12, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. (laughs) Well, that's never been said of any human, let alone a wicked human king that is being denounced by a prophet. But that could be said of all beings before the fall and especially of an elevated angel. Look at verse 13. You were in Eden, the garden of God. (laughs) Well, the king of Tyre was not in Eden, the garden of God, but whoever's being addressed through this oracle is. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Hmm. In abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. Here is God speaking through this prophet to the king of Tyre, but I believe through the king of Tyre, because none of those phrases make sense unless we have God speaking to Satan. Now, let's put this together briefly with what we already know about creation and redemption. We think of history and some grand brushstrokes of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. What we see is that God created everything. He created Adam and Eve. He created the world, and he apparently created the angels at some point before uh, this work of creation was done because Scripture tells us that the angels are watching some of this work of creation. So by the end of Genesis chapter 2, we have uh, the cosmos as we now have them. We have a host of angelic beings, all good, existing to glorify God and pleased to do it. And we have Adam and Eve. And God saw that it was good. And in fact, Adam and Eve were very good being made in his glory. And by the time we get to the end of Genesis 2, there apparently is no fall, no sin. But somewhere between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, the events described here in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 take place. We have Satan who has created an angel. Now, I don't know. Some of you may not know that, so write that in your notes. Satan is a created being. Satan is a created angel. And at some point, he got full of himself. God made him beautiful. And he looked at himself and he looked at God and he was not uh, content using his beauty to glorify God. He wanted the glory that belonged to God. You were blameless in your ways in the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. An anointed guardian cherub on the mountain of God. But your heart was proud because of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. So I cast you to the ground. So somewhere between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, we believe that Satan became puffed up with pride. This was the first sin, and God punished him and cast him out of heaven. We believe from other scriptures we don't have time to look at today that a large number of other angels followed him in that rebellion, and they became what are known now as demons. But please understand, there's nothing in this world But God, the angels he made and the humans that he made, people come to me sometimes and say, Pastor, but what about ghosts? I say, I don't know what you mean by that. I had a teenager say, what about poltergeists? I said, I don't even know what that word means. I have no clue. I don't know the etymology of that word. I don't know what it means now. I don't know what it means to you. But I can tell you what exists in the world. There's God and there are angels and there are humans. Now, those angels were split at some point. 
One of them has a name. His name is Satan, but he's still a created being. And apparently quite a few of the angels followed him, and we call them demons. So we have God, we have good angels and bad angels and humans, and that's it. That's it. And there goes half your Hollywood movies. Sorry to ruin it for you. But let's read our Bibles and take our truth from there. So now we have Satan cast down to the earth. So it makes sense that Jesus would say in Luke 10, 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In fact, Matthew 25, 41 shows Jesus saying to unbelievers at the final judgment. Listen, this is interesting. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, Irenaeus, the church father, writing in the second century, said eternal fire was not originally prepared for man, but him who is the leader of the apostasy and for those angels who became apostates along with him. That's his interpretation of Matthew 25, 41, and I think I agree with him. When Satan fell and was cast out of heaven, God prepared then this place called hell and the lake of fire as a place of everlasting torment for the eternal Satan and the other fallen angels. Then, when humanity followed Satan into rebellion against God, that became the place of their torment as well. Isn't that interesting? We don't tend to think that way. We're so human-centered, we're so self-centered, all of us, and man-centered as a group, that we just assume that hell came about because God needed a place for uh, human sinners. I don't think that's the case. I think that uh, when Jesus says, depart from me into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, it means they were created as the resting place first for Satan and the angels, a place of torment, into which then all humans that followed in the rebellion would also tragically go. So practically speaking, since Satan is a created being, a fallen angel and nothing more, it means that he is not equal to God. We have to put categories of dualism out of our mind. This is not yin and yang. Equal forces, one good, one bad, locked in an epic struggle and we'll never know who wins. This is not the Marvel Universe, which I'm so sick of. They're so confusing. I've watched a few of those. My kids get frustrated. I said, I thought he was good. No, Dad, he's bad. I thought he was bad. He was bad. He's good now. Wait, I thought this one was bad. Now he's good. Dad, he's bad again. You see? Um, and so in that universe, you'll notice there is really no good or bad. And in the end, there's no triumph. They just keep struggling. That's not reality. God is good, and he is all-powerful, and he is all-wise, and he has secured the redemption of all who will ever be saved with the finished work on the cross in an empty tomb, and Satan is already defeated. It's just that the battles rage on. Do not think that Satan is some kind of equal foe against God. Satan is infinitely less powerful than God because God is all-powerful and Satan is a tiny, puny, insignificant angel. Uh, Because he is a created being, let me say it this way. The power differential between Satan and God is infinitely greater than the power differential between Satan and a green being. He is a created being. And he is under the sovereign power and authority of God. So understand Satan's origin and do not fear Satan. His activity is limited by God's sovereign rule. If you're a note taker, write that down under our second heading. Do not fear Satan. His activity is limited by God's sovereign rule. Let me show you this very briefly with a flyover of Job 1 and 2. Job was a righteous man, so devout and righteous before God, that God points to him like a proud father will before Satan and says, look at my servant Job. Job was a righteous man. Verse 6 of Job 1, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? 
Satan answered the Lord from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. Now we know that Satan roams, prowls like a lion. What's he trying to do? Seeking someone to devour. He's looking for someone that he can try to turn away from the Lord. Verse 8, and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? God points out Job to Satan. You looking for targets? Huh? Job, you're out there trying to gloat, seeing how many people have turned away from me, uh, trying to show how unrighteous humanity is before me, Satan. Have you considered Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? God, you have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face, God. Satan says, yeah, easy, God. Sure. You give a man a big family. You give a man uh, kids that, that follow the Lord. You give a man a good job and, frankly, extravagant wealth is how Job has explained to us. And Satan says, of course he praises you. He's got the easiest life I've ever seen, God. Take all that away from him. He'll curse you to his face. Look at verse 12. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And what we see in the next paragraph there, second half of the chapter, is that Satan goes and in uh, swift order removes all that Job has. All that Job has. Takes away his wealth. Takes away even his children. I need you to understand, this is a passage that will blow the training wheels off your theology fast. If your theology does not have a category for God who is so sovereign that he can use even tragedy among humanity to accomplish divine good, you've not yet understood God. Here is God before Satan saying, yes, Satan, you may, you may take away all that Job has, including his children. You see, we're comfortable saying that God has appointed the day on which everyone will die. We're even comfortable saying that God in his providence will take some of his beloved children out of this world as infants or children or teenagers or young adults, as hard as that is. Most of us understand that because we see it. But some Christians struggle to say that this is part of God's good plan for his glory and the good of all of those who love him. And that God would even give Satan permission to work in these ways. Job 1 and 2 will challenge your view of God. If you can read it with an amen, it will mean you're really getting somewhere. If it makes you uncomfortable, that's okay. That's okay. Theology is uncomfortable. The more we learn about God, it challenges us. And we need to dig in. And whenever your heart runs crosswise with what you see on the page, that's a good thing. You stop and you pray and you say, Lord, rearrange my heart. Show me what's here that's bothering me and rearrange my heart. It gets even worse. Look at Job chapter 2. Again, there came a day when the sons of God, notice the angels, came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came among them to present himself before God. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, walking up and down on it. He's never not prowling like a lion looking for that opportunity to lead you and I into sin, to derail our marriage, to derail our parenting, to derail our ministry, to lead us into sin. The war is active. Verse 3, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Here is Job in the ash heap, a broken man crying out to God. And God points to him again. So Satan, I noticed you failed. Did you notice? Because here's my servant. You took everything he had, and he has not cursed me to my face. He's still faithful to me. He's still walking in righteousness. How about it, Satan? 
If you consider Job, that there's none like him on the earth, blameless and upright. He fears God and he turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. How do you like them apples, Satan? That's what God said. That's my translation. It's loose. It's paraphrase. How do you like them apples, Satan? He still is righteous and upright before me. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. Satan says, God, sure. Because he's not in pain. You've taken all that he has, but look at him. He's still healthy. He's still strong. He's never felt real pain. Isn't that true? Especially as men. Many of us would be happy to die in the arena in a blaze of glory. But you lay on us long, difficult suffering. Much harder. Much harder. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery from the... uh, Uh, with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, listen, Job did not sin with his lips. You have to read the rest of Job to see what happens, especially the last few chapters. He comes out of it stronger in his faith than ever before. And God restores his fortunes. In fact, Job says, the one who God bragged about, it's like before I had heard of you with the ear, but now I have seen you with my eye. It's beautiful. It's challenging. It's beautiful. What I want you to see here is that Job couldn't do anything that God didn't allow. Now, you need to know this, Christian, because if it hasn't happened yet, You will go through a season in your life that looks like it must have come directly from the hand of Satan and still smells like sulfur. You will go through seasons of trial and difficulty, losing a loved one, sickness, pain, whatever it might be, and it will look like it has come from the hand of Satan, and it might have. But please know this. Satan cannot do anything that God in his providence has not allowed. Satan cannot do anything to you or your loved ones that God in his providence has not allowed. Or as I said, Satan's activity is limited by God's sovereign rule. When I was four years old, I had a sister who was five and a half who died of leukemia. And when she died, she sat, my parents sat in an office with one of her doctors And the doctors were alarmed by how uh, calm they seemed to be at the end of this several-year struggle. And he was crying. He was a good man, though not a believer, a good doctor. And and he loved my my sister. And he said to my parents, you should be angry. You you should be shouting. You You should shake your fist at God and shout. My mom said we would never shake our fist at God. Because God loved Kirsten more than we could. And she's in the arms of Jesus now. He will take better care of her than we ever could. Why on earth would we be angry at God? He didn't understand. Now, it's one thing for an unbeliever to say that. You kind of understand it. But just a short while later, they were back up home. No more hospitals. No more back and forth. And they went to a prayer meeting at um, at my mom's parents' church. And they were well-loved there. And a, and a very genuine dear brother stood up. And said, please pray for Teresa and Jerry because Satan has taken their little girl away and they are grieving. God bless my mama. She stood up and she said, thank you so much, brother. We do covet your prayers. But I just want to say that Satan has not taken our little girl. God has taken our little girl. He will be good to us. In fact, bringing this up with her again, she reminded me that she also read Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. 
Satan can never do anything to you that God in his providence has not allowed. Now, you need theology that robust or you will not be able to handle the Job-like trials in life. So understand the origin of Satan. He's a created being and therefore under the sovereign power of God. Number two, do not fear Satan. His activity is limited by God's sovereign rule. R.C. Sproul said, Satan cannot move a finger without God's permission. We know that this is true. But number two, why should you not fear Satan? Because Satan's defeat is sealed by Christ's settled victory. Satan's defeat is sealed by Christ's settled victory. Revelation 29 and 10 shows Satan's final moments at the end of the age. Look at how pathetic they are. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. How about 1 John 3, 8? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The whole reason the Son of God appeared, by the way, this is a Christmas verse. You ain't seen that on a Christmas card in a while. Now I beg one of you, put this on your Christmas card this year. Picture your kid smiling. And 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's a Christmas card. Now you send it to me when you do it. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Why? So that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And he already did it. He already came as a human. He took on the weakness of human flesh. He felt temptation more than you or I will ever feel it because he never gave in. And then he went into the grave and destroyed Satan. John 16, 11 says the ruler of this world is judged. Satan is fully subject to God's sovereign rule and Christ's settled victory. So we do not fear Satan, but we do take him seriously. We do take his works very seriously. Look, um, maybe raise your hand if you've ever crossed the street or been near moving cars. Yeah? Good. Now, you don't think about this, but the truth is every time you cross the street with cars zooming by, that's a life and death situation. Now, when our kids are young, we know this, and it's terrifying. We have five kiddos, and you spend all those years afraid of roads and streets a little bit. You're, you're clutching hands, and you're, you're throwing out feet to get the little ones, and, you know, pulling back, and you're trying to carry two at a time. And, right, hold on. Have you ever said this? Hold on to my jacket. Don't let go. Do not let go. You know, and you're, right? You have to get them safely across the streets. We understand the danger. Now, as a grown-up, I have never feared a car, and I've never feared a street. Um, that's not true. I drove through New York City once. But other than that, I've never feared a car or feared a street. And yet, I understand fully that cars on streets can kill you. And so every time I cross the street, even though it's something that happens probably about every day, I take it serious. I look both ways. I make sure there's no cars coming. I take very seriously the destructive effect of a car on a street. I think this is instructive for us. We do not fear Satan, but we take his works seriously. In the second century, the shepherd of Hermas wrote, Fear the Lord and keep his commandments, but do not fear the devil. For if you fear the Lord, you will rule over the devil because he has no power. And where there is no power, there is no fear. But do fear the works of the devil because they are evil. And the shepherd of Hermas. I think this is true. I want to read you just a few of the things that Satan can do. I'm going to read them from this sheet. By the way, if you need to, to do a message on Satan and you're not sure where to start, here's how you should start anything if you ever have to teach. I just used my software and um, I typed in Satan and devil and the prince. And, you know, Any words that might lead me to Satan, 
And then I copied and pasted them all into a Word document. Believe it or not, it's only about a 100 verses that directly mention Satan. From there, you just read over the document a few times. And you get a couple colors of highlighter, and you highlight different things in different colors. And by the end of that, you'll have a pretty good handle on what the Bible teaches about Satan. That's where I started this message because I didn't know where else to start. We like expository preaching because you know where to start. <laughs> and um, I'm just going to flip through and read to you some of the things that Satan will try to do in your life this week. We see way back First Chronicles 21, Satan uh, stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Well, Satan may incite you this week to doubt God and trust in your own strength. Uh, how about Matthew 4? We have Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Satan and his demons can tempt you to sin in a variety of ways. How about Matthew 13, 19? The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart in the parable of the soils. Meaning every time you read the scripture, Satan is standing by. He would love to snatch the word out of your heart so that you can't reflect on it, meditate on it, repent in light of it, obey it. This is why when you speak to your loved ones that don't know Christ, that just you can almost see that veil over their eyes. Why? Because Satan's right there. Every seed you lay down, he's grabbing out. You see? We need to be wary of this. Satan is active. How about Luke 22, 3? Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. On very rare occasions, we see Satan, demons, entering into people to control them. By the way, I'm going to say definitively and move on, and Ryan can answer this for you later, um, a Christian who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, cannot be possessed by Satan or a demon. Now, you can take your questions about that to Ryan. But I believe that to be true, and I assume he probably does too, but we can argue about that. That's tertiary. But um, there are occasions when Satan and the demons enter into humans. Well, that's scary. How about John 8:44? He was a murderer from the beginning. And there's no truth in him, and he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan will work this week to cause you to believe lies about God, about his word, about your spouse, about your parents, about your kids. It's what he does, and he's good at it. He's the ruler of this world. He put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, um, Simon's son, to betray Jesus. Ananias uh, comes and they say, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Meaning, Satan is so tricky, he can influence your thinking to cause you to walk in spiritual self-deception. Lying to yourself and to the Spirit even in your prayers. Acts 13.10, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Satan will make the path of the Lord look like the crooked path to you instead of the straight path. You realize that he does all these things? 2 Corinthians 2.11, um, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. That's why we're doing this message, so that you can know your enemy and not be ignorant of his designs. But he w is trying to outwit you this very week. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, which is why no evangelism without prayer is uh, meaningful. We're going out to ask God to do a miracle. So we share the word and then we pray for God to do what we cannot and what they cannot. Spiritual warfare. I'll be done there. There's, there's a lot more, but that's just a sampling. So we take Satan's work seriously. This is why Paul has written Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. That's why we just got done spending eight weeks on this topic of spiritual warfare. I think it's a good passage for you to dig into so you can know who Satan is and his origin. You can understand his limitations so that you don't fear him. But once you've come to take him appropriately serious, then you can dig into Ephesians 6, 10 to 20 individually as a family and learn how to stand against the schemes of Satan. How do we do that? Well, finally, number four, we draw near to God. Now, this is the most important part of this. All that we can see about Satan and the demons and their work in Scripture. Paul then gives us uh, armor to take up and to put on. And here's what's interesting. We don't put on our armor and take up our sword of the Spirit, which is the Word, and then charge out after Satan and the demons. 
We take all these things up so that Satan's fiery darts will glance off of us and we'll know how to do battle even in our mind as Satan tempts us. And we can block that off and thrust back with Scripture. But all of that prepares us simply to turn and draw near to God. Spiritual warfare is always a matter of drawing near to God. For the sake of time, we'll look at just one passage, and that's James 4, 7, and 8. James 4, 7, and 8. And I want you to notice, there's a sandwich here. James says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Now in the middle, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And then back on the outside of the sandwich again, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. What does spiritual warfare look like? It looks like turning to God every day. It looks like submitting to God. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean, uh, it means more than, but it can't mean less than obedience. <laughs> it means waking up in the morning and saying, God, I'm a sinner, and I'm, I'm just as likely to sin against you in just as vile a way as anyone else on the face of the earth. Help! God, help me. You submit yourselves, therefore, to God. You resist the devil. Meaning, you see where the temptation is coming from. You run away from it. If this area causes you to sin, you get away from it. If the TV causes you to sin, get rid of it. Your life will only be better. If the books you read cause you to sin, burn them. If a particular friend causes you to sin, stop hanging out with them. Except during the light of day with another strong Christian friend there so that the influence is in the right direction. You see, this is spiritual warfare. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Humble yourselves before the Lord. He will exalt you. I'm going to read you a quote from this book that I'm going to give away. I've got two of them. Whatever comes up first is going to happen, but you have to follow the rules. Very simply, this paragraph says, in the context of spiritual warfare, humility is the simple act of recognizing that in yourself, you are no match for the temptations served up by the devil and his demons, aided by the world and the flesh. It's admitting that you are totally dependent on God's enabling power in order to resist. And when you humble yourself in this manner, James promises that two astonishing things will happen in God's perfect timing. Grace will flow and God will exalt you above the temptation. Humbly submit to the Lord. Fight Satan God's way. And grace and exaltation are yours. That's a preview. We learn to submit to God, to draw near to Him, to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts and humble ourselves before the Lord. We will find that those are the steps of resisting Satan and we will find increasingly that He will flee from us. He will find that uh, He can't find an opening. (laughs) He will never stop trying and you must never be off your guard. That's what spiritual warfare looks like foundationally. Then you'll have nothing to fear. Again, we're young, my children. They knew how to cross the street safely. They learned by experience from many flailing hands and grabbing and and you're holding one and you've got the other. You remember these days? Some of you have little children. We feel for you. Remember when you have one, but you have to pick up the other one and you're not sure how because your hand is full, but you have to get across the street. And so you're trying, you're looking and you're trying to do the, where you grab with one hand and like swing them up and catch them. It's precarious, especially over concrete, and you're afraid it's going to hurt their arm, and you're looking to see if anyone's watching first, right? You're seeing your, huh, and then, it's a circus. It's It's a beloved, it's a blessed circus, you see? Well, my children figured out, because I kept scooping them up over and over when they were very young, how to cross any street in the world safely. It was easy. They just had to crawl up into my arms or hold tightly to my hand. Now, you see, when you're young, you think your dad's invincible. They thought these cars have nothing on old dad. If I'm holding on to his hand or I'm up in his arm, they weren't even looking at the cars. They're zooming by and they're babbling and looking, look, birdie, you know. Um, 
What they did know is dad would much rather die than let me get hurt. That was true. But you see, when we take God's hand, or we humble ourselves and we crawl up into his arms, our daddy is invincible. Our daddy's almighty. He's all-knowing. He feels the pain that you feel and the temptation that you feel, and he loves you so much that he sent his son to die for your sins so that you could not only be free from the punishment of sin for an eternity, but so that you could walk with him now in increasing peace and joy and comfort and assurance of your salvation. That's how much your God loves you. We have a daddy that loves us that much. So what does spiritual warfare look like? Sorry, tough men. As, as men, right, we want to be tough. We like chainsaws, guns, you know. Look, I'm sorry if this is emasculating men, but you know how you will protect your family, not with your muscles. You'll do it with the humility to think like a child and crawl up in God's arms every day and say, God, I can't do it, only you can. I'm a child before you, God. Help protect me and my family. You see, man, that's how how you'll be taught. That's how you'll be taught. Take hold of God's hand, crawl up into his arms, humble yourself. Turn to Him. Make it a daily habit. And you will find that you don't have to fear Satan. He can take His work very seriously by resting in Christ, thereby experiencing spiritual victory. So I encourage all of us in this coming year to draw near to God in intentional spiritual warfare, perhaps more than last year. There's a, there's a resolution for us. We're close enough to January. Now I'm going to pray one more time, and come find me afterwards. I'm going to give these two out. You've got to read it within a month or so. Give it to someone else and make sure they read it, and then meet up to discuss it. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. We thank you, Father, that the victory is secure. Satan is defeated, and that though the battles rage on, Father, there's no question as to who's going to win. All who are in Christ win. Oh, Father, thank you for the confidence that gives us. But Lord, we are susceptible. Sins from within, sins from without. Father, we are susceptible. Our flesh rears its ugly head. We give in to temptation. Father, would you forgive us? Help us to walk more closely with you. Help us, Father, to come humbly before you. Crawl up into your arms in prayer and humble obedience so that you can carry us across this street of our remaining time here on earth. Oh, Father, we thank you and we praise you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.